Well, I love a good story, and uh, I think an underdog story, a story where there's a failure, but then a bouncing back and success. And you've probably heard of some of the famous ones, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colonel Sanders, who fails at business and then comes back later in life to do amazing things. You've got, I mean, here we are in Chicago. You've got Michael Jordan, who gets cut from his uh, high school basketball team, and then look how that turned out. You got Tom Brady, uh, who was the 199th choice in the draft when he went to the NFL. Not a real confidence building beginning to his uh, NFL career. And, um, and I've got one too. I got one too. Um, when I was uh, asked to, to come to a church uh, back in 1999, uh, they wanted to build a ministry to Gen Xers. Uh, to young adults at that time and uh, basically the elders had kids that were graduating from high school and there was nothing for them <laughs> and so they wanted me to come and try to build some sort of program they gave me twenty thousand dollars and they said uh, this is your budget go out and uh, see what you can do to reach people and so uh, I didn't really know what I was doing at all I, I spent 19 of the twenty thousand dollars in advertising uh, I marketed I got on the radio I, I invited everybody to come and sure enough, on the first night, there were 250 young adults that, that showed up, which was a big deal for that church. And I remember the senior pastor, who was kind of a gruff kind of a guy, um, actually found me the next day and gave me a big old hug. <laughs> and I thought, man, I'm a winner. I am, I am doing well. And um, anyway, so this 250 people came, and every week we were going to have a service for them. And, and uh, three months later, I had uh, preached that group of 250 uh, down to 35 people, which I don't know if you have studied church growth, but that's kind of the opposite direction of where you're trying to go. And I, I just remember thinking, man, wh what have I done? And, and, and what did I go to school for? And, 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 you know, what kind of worth do I have, you know? Um, we, we decided that what we would do is since we kind of spent all the money, we didn't have any resources, and obviously I wasn't that good at preaching, um, so we decided we were going to grow one relationship at a time. And so I actually started uh, three small groups. I had uh, very young kids at the time, and I looked at my wife and I just said, hey, I, I got to figure this out. And so I literally led a small group Monday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. And I just took those people, those 35 folks, and we just split them into three groups. And, and I did that for a while. And then eventually we found two apprentice leaders who would lead two of the groups. And then I kind of taught them to, to each get an apprentice leader. And we went from three groups to six groups. And six groups became 12. And, and it really wasn't very long before there weren't 250 people in that ministry coming on the weekend. But there were 450 and 500 people that were coming. And it turned out all right. But here's the deal. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. Praise God, right? Praise God. But here's the thing. Um, I know the end of the story, therefore I can look back on it and go, wow, that was, that was great. God was building a ministry and building me at the same time. But I can tell you what, I don't know if I'd choose to go through it again. Because there were moments that I really questioned whether or not I was doing what God was calling me to do. There were moments that I questioned whether I really had what it took, whether I was really kind of inadequate uh, to do what God was calling me to do, that, that I really mattered. I remember specifically 
I remember the church was doing a, a campaign on generosity. And they actually had a woman in the church that they told the story of that, that, that she was giving money to the church. And, and this was her story. She was a woman that was about 70 years old and she lived... Uh, on a fixed income and she was in this apartment building and and sure enough like she came up on the stage and everything she had bowlegs I mean she could barely walk and they told the story of this woman this wonderful story of this woman who um to, to give money to the church she would she would go up and she'd do ironing for different people in her apartment building and walking up the stairs and down the stairs and like the more the more I imagine this woman giving money to the church. The more I imagine this woman hobbling and working super hard, and I'm thinking to myself, if they cut my salary, she wouldn't have to do that. Like, I remember, it was like Satan was just on my shoulder going, dude, you are costing her all kinds of problems. And I just thought, like, I'm, my worth, my, 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 my value, I just felt like was very much in question. And my, my question to you today is this, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been tempted to wonder, man, are you adequate? Do you matter? Do you have value? We're in this series where we're saying you're not alone. We're looking at some of the challenges that people face in mental health, and that is one of them. Your self-esteem, your value, do you have what it takes? I want to tell you a story of a guy today. It was kind of an underdog story, and one of the things I like about his story is that it's not a real popular one. Uh, A lot of people have never heard of Ehud. Uh, but if you're, if you're here or following along online, I'm going to be in Judges 3. And in verse 12, his story goes like this. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So for 18 years... They have been conquered by Eglon and the Moabites, and, and that's, that's where we meet them. And in verse 15, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, and a son of Gera the Benjamite. All right, so the Israelites are in this cycle where they sort of forget God, and uh, they follow other gods, they worship other gods, and then... Uh, there's, there's a kingdom that comes in and conquers them and they, they endure that for a while until they finally cry out to the one true God and then God would raise up in this period what they would call judges. This is the period of the judges, but don't think black robe and gavel. Think military leader, right? And these judges would come and they would deliver the people and lead the people for a time. And here God is calling this guy Ehud. Now, he is not a likely hero. He is from the wrong tribe, (laughs) the Benjamites. If you you look earlier in chapter 1 of Judges, the Benjamites uh, basically didn't show up for a battle. They they were kind of the unpopular tribe of the 12. At some point in this story, the rest of the tribes of Israel almost wiped out the, the, the Benjamite tribe. So he's from the wrong tribe. But not only is he from the wrong tribe, it says in verse 15 that he was left-handed. Now, why does the writer include this detail? Because God very rarely uses left-handed people. I'm just kidding. I'm, 
<laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But it is significant. It is significant. Do you know Benjamin, Benjamin means son of my right hand? 90% of people are right-handed. Um, 90% of people are right-handed. Uh, it, it was pictured that God would smite people with the right hand, that he would deliver people with his right hand. It was the son of my right hand. That was the Benjamite people. 90% of the people are right-handed. And often what would happen is they would develop their, their swordsmen. They would work together in formation and they would, everybody have their right hand here and their, their shield here. And my, my uh, weak spot would be covered by your strength. And, and that formation worked unless there was a left-handed person trying to swing the sword with their left hand. And so often what would happen with the left-handed folks is that they became the archers or they became the slingers with slingshots in the army. So it's very interesting that he says, hey, this guy is a left-handed guy because what we're about to see is he's going to do something that requires a sword. He's basically saying, hey, this is a guy who's probably unqualified or maybe literally in the Hebrew it says unable to use his right hand. Now, often in Scripture, or everywhere in Scripture, it says just left-handed, but two times it actually uses the phrase not able to use your right hand or bound in your right hand. So it could be that he even had a disability in his right hand. We're not quite sure, but for whatever reason, this guy's probably not qualified to use a sword, and yet he's going to be called to use a sword. So he's just an unlikely hero. And Ehud has given these orders and double O Ehud is to go off to, to King Eglon, and he's going to give him tribute, and then let's keep going in verse 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing, and he presented the tribute to, king, uh, to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. And here's the thing. He'd gotten a double-edged sword, he put it on his right thigh. Why did he put it on the right thigh? Put it on the right thigh to avoid the metal detectors. He said, what are you talking about? There were no metal detectors. Well, there were weapon detectors. Basically, back then, if you came, they would frisk you, but they would only frisk this side because all of the swordsmen always kept their sword on this side. So if you came, they would pat you down. But here is this guy perfectly made because he's left-handed, puts a sword on his right hip, and he's going to make it through. And he arrives at the king's palace, the secret lair of the enemy, and like all great villains, uh, Eglon is interesting, his name actually means cow. And sure enough, verse 17, we find out he's a very big man, okay? In verse 18, it goes on. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But then on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon, the king. And he said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. So here's his plan. King, I have a secret message, just you and me. So I'm going to take all my people out. And king, why don't you get rid of all your people, because I just need it to be you and me. Verse 20, Ehun then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. And then, like, I'm just imagining, you know, it goes all slow motion. I don't know, Quentin Tarantino, kind of gory and weird. But I'm just going to tell you right now, this is where it goes PG-13. So if you don't like gory detail, and I don't get this either. Like, I'm going to go to heaven at some day, and whoever wrote this, I'm going to be like, do we really need all of this? Okay, but I'm not the writer. Okay, so just remember this. As the king rose from his seat, 
Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, gross, and his bowels discharged, double gross. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. That's a triple gross right there. I mean, that's just (laughs) disgusting, but that's what it says. Now, that's when my imagination clicks in, and I'm thinking this 007 Ehud, at some point, like he stops and he breaks the fourth wall and he looks at the camera and he's like, well, I think he got the point, you know, or something like that. And then he goes out. Verse 24 says this, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors to the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself. Okay, we're going on quadruple gross here. Um, in the inner room of the house, they waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and they unlocked them. And so Ehud had time then to escape. He has time to escape, and then he goes back, this unlikely hero, this um, from the, the, the unpopular tribe. He goes back in verse 28, and I'm almost done, says, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. He goes back to the Israelites and he says, okay, I've killed the king, let's go. And so they followed him down and they took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over, and at that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. No one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel now, and the land had peace for 80 years and that is an underdog story somebody who was unlikely to do something big for God now here's the big question today let me let me give you this question to think about if you knew that you'd be successful what great thing would you attempt for God if you knew it would be blessed If money's no object or failure's not an option, like if you knew that God would bless what you're doing, just let your imagination go for a little bit. What what vision would God birth in you? And just begin to think about that. And, And I'll say this too, like real quick, don't aim small, okay? Because yes, he was able to kill the king, but like the real vision He couldn't even accomplish the real vision on his own. He had to go back and get all of the Israelite people. And I would just say this, if you start to imagine, hey, what is a God-sized vision in your life, but you can accomplish it on your own, I'm telling you, it's not God-sized. So I want you to be thinking about, man, what is the the movement I can start? What is the big problem I can solve? What what is the thing that God could do through me? I think about about, uh, a man in our church who owned a uh, credit card processing company. That was his business. That's what he did. And one day he realized that as people are giving to churches, that credit card companies are getting 4% and 3% and all that money. And so he said, well, I'm just going to take my business and I'm going to provide that. Now, he, he had to do that at some cost. He had to invest to make this happen. But he created a nonprofit called MyWell, which is what we how we give money here at the church he creates this thing it's a not-for-profit and he processes those things at cost 
so that all the money goes to the church and not to Visa and MasterCard and all that sort of thing. And, and he has saved churches across the country millions and millions and millions of dollars. And that just came from him going, you know what, what could I do? What could I do? There was a police officer uh, in Michigan and years ago. He was locking people up and he's just going, man, there's got to be some solution to this. Like I, I'm constantly, I'm seeing some of the, some of the hardest things. I'm, I'm watching people just suffer. There's got to be something more I can do than just lock up bad guys. And so what he did was he took $25,000 of his own money, he saved it up, and he came to his church. And he said, here's what I'd like to do, church. I'd like to give that $25,000 to a bunch of people in our church. And I just want to challenge you to go out and turn that money into something else. So he gave some people 100 and some people 300 and some people 500. And people went out and some people did a bake sale and some people crocheted knitting or uh, crocheted potholders and some people did this or did car washes or that sort of thing. And they turned that $25,000 into $50,000. How cool is that? And then that police officer started going around the country to pastor conferences. Just think about this. And he, he printed out on his home printer little brochures about starting a church in his hometown. And with that, that seed money that he had and his little brochure, he'd walk up to people and he'd go, are you a pastor? W would, you, would you be interested in starting a church in, in my hometown? That's literally what he did. And as his story grew, other people got excited about what he was doing. And there's a church of over 10,000 people in Michigan right now because of this police. And he would say, well, I'm, I was just a police officer. Look what he did. And my question to you is whether you lead a rooted group. Or go work in the, the C&J, go to the care center or uh, here at uh, South Barrington. I mean, there are hundreds of people that are served there. My question is, what could you do if God said, you do it and I'll bless it? And with that in mind, let me make three observations about our story today. The first one is this. I want to encourage us to wake up. I want to encourage us to wake up to whatever is holding us back from stepping into the calling that God has on our lives. It's interesting to me that it took 18 years for those Israelites to call out for help. They got conquered and then it was 18 years before they cried out to God. Now, why did they suffer so long? Maybe it was like the frog in, in, in the pot, you know, and the water just gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and eventually it's a real problem. Maybe that's it. Maybe when they first got overtaken, it wasn't that big a deal, and it, it just took lots of time before the taxes got higher and higher and higher, or, or, or the freedoms got less and less and less and less. I, I'm not sure, but, but maybe that was it. And I think maybe that's it for us. Maybe for some of us... Um, uh, last week we talked about RPMs, how are we doing relationally, physically, mentally, spiritually. Maybe for, for some of us we've just let our relationships go, we've isolated ourselves. Or maybe physically we've just let some things go. Or maybe our, our mental health, we, we've just started to uh, accept or ingest lies about ourselves. Or maybe spiritually we're just not um, you know, connecting with God. And so over time 
Things have just gotten worse, a little worse, a little worse, a little worse. And next thing you know, there is. There's depression. There's anxiety. And we didn't even see it happening. Maybe we have a marriage that, man, when we walked down the aisle, we had the best of intentions. But over time, there's just been this drift. And nobody chose it. It just, it just happens over time. Maybe that was it. Maybe it just took them that long because it just slowly slipped that way. Maybe it took them so long because as, as they began to wake up and go, hmm, uh, maybe somebody should do something about this, they, they just sort of collectively thought, well, goodness, this is, um, it's going to cost a lot. I mean, this is going to be like a, a long, drawn-out war. We, we would have to step up to do something. And, and maybe they sort of just sort of realized, man, the cost to do something, they were just imagining that it was just too high and I think that's the way it is for us sometimes too the couch is comfortable Netflix is comfortable I mean I I I may I may not like my job but I've been in this job for 15 years now so eh And the cost to go back to school or the cost to start a new business or the cost to take a risk just feels too high. And so we just kind of stick around and play it safe and we're comfortable. Maybe for them, maybe the Israelites took 18 years because worshiping Baal and Asheroth, which were those gods, there was actually, um, maybe they enjoyed it, and I, I don't mean to be graphic, but the way that they worshiped those gods was with sexual acts. And maybe for the people, they just went, well, this, there's a payoff to this. There's a, and can we just be honest? And I'm not being flippant here. Sin is fun. I mean, sin in the beginning, there's always a short-term payoff to it. Otherwise, you would never do it. And so maybe, for, maybe these people took 18 years because they're like us. That we would say, hey, you know what? Honestly, like, I, I, alcohol, it... I, it it numbs the pain for a little while. The, the, the pills actually help in the short term. And the truth is, is that over time, I can see where it's destroying my confidence. I can see where it's destroying my relationships. I can see where it's destroying my finances. I can see all the destruction from it. But honestly, like it's Friday night and I just need a fix. And so maybe be, just the way that they took 18 years, maybe God would be calling us to wake up to the cost of some of these things. Wake up to what it is that God is calling us to do. Um, wake up to the fact that you have a God that loves you. Wake up to the fact that you have a Jesus who died on the cross so that you're, you can get past your past, you can have freedom. Wake up to the fact that you have a church community that is locked arms ready to support you and what and what God is calling you to do like we are excited to watch God work through you in your life and work on your life and watch you take next steps with God wake up to the fact that there is help that there's professionals there are resources and we talked about this last week we've got this website you are not alone.cc youarenotalone.cc if you want some help some resources mental health and moving forward go there check it out 
Um, I'll say this before I move on to the next point. Ehud's sword, double-edged. Do you know where else the double-edged sword shows up in Scripture? Is in Timothy, it starts talking about God's Word, the Bible, as the double-edged sword. That it, it not only cuts this way, but it cuts this way. And my prayer today is that the Bible would challenge us, that the Bible would convict us, that, that God's Word, not, not just today, but, but as we come, as we gather, as we study, as we celebrate God's Word, as we lift it up, that, that, that it would begin to show us and convict us where are the places that we've fallen asleep, that we've gotten complacent, that apathy has run wild. God, show us those things. And like it says in James, James talks about the Bible like it's a mirror, that we're supposed to come to it and see ourselves and then do something about what we see. And it occurs to me that we see ourselves in one of two ways. We either see a reflection, like in a mirror, or we see ourselves like a photograph, like a picture of ourselves. And how silly it would be for me to wake up in the morning and instead of going into the bathroom where the mirror is, to go over next to the wall in our bed where our wedding picture is and get up in front of that wedding picture. Now, I've got, you know, hair going, bed head, just gross. and I've got bags under my eyes. I just woke up. But here I am looking at this picture of me on my wedding day and going, hey, uh, not bad, you know, and just kind of walking out. We'd scare people. <laughs> So the idea is I don't want the Bible to be a place where I just look and see the parts that I love and then just walk away. I want the Bible to be the thing that shows me the truth about myself. And so my prayer is, God, wake us up today. Give us an awakening to what you want to say, what you want to inspire in us. Wake up. Number two is this, step up. Step up to the calling that God has on your life. And you say, well, I'm from the wrong family. Eh. You say, oh, well, I'm not popular. Oh, well, I've got... And part of stepping up is stepping over our excuses. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those that he calls. Amen? God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those that he called. This is an underdog story that we saw today. There were all kinds of reasons that he shouldn't have been the hero in the story. And yet God used him. It reminds me of the verse in Ephesians 2.10. It says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do that word handiwork right there that word is actually poema what it means is where we get our word poem it's a work of art it's a masterpiece there's a big difference between mass production and masterpieces you are a masterpiece of god He's made you intentionally. He's made you creatively. He made you exactly the way he wanted you to be. And he created you in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. You are a piece of work. Look at your neighbor and say, you are really a piece of work, right? <laughs> hey, let me introduce you to Zach Hunter. This is Zach Hunter, 12 years old, he heard the story of how people, young people especially, were being trafficked. Young people as slaves working on farms around the world and brothels around the world and factories around the world. And at 12 years old, a seventh grader, uh, he launches Loose Change to Loosen Chains. 
in his school. And in that first year, he, he uh, collected $8,000 from his local school. At 15, he became a, spoke, a spokesperson for the amazing change, and now schools all over the country are collecting change, change to end slavery. He has now written four books. He speaks all over the world to hundreds of thousands of people every year and has raised millions of dollars for this thing. Zach didn't let his youth, he was 12 years old. He could have easily said, well, you know what, I'm just a kid. Sometimes stepping up to God's calling in your life is stepping over the excuse that you have. There's a lot of unlikely, unqualified people in the Bible. Noah, he got drunk. And Abraham was old. And Jacob had a problem with lying. People didn't trust him. Joseph was abused as a kid and abandoned. Moses had a speech impediment. Gideon, he was afraid. He struggled with fear. Rahab was a prostitute. She had a past. David had an affair and murdered someone to cover it up, and yet God still used his life. Jonah ran from God initially. John the Baptist was socially awkward. Martha worried. Worried too much. Matthew was a cheat. Paul persecuted the church. Peter denied knowing Jesus. Guys, and Lazarus was dead. <laughs> like, what's your excuse? <laughs> In each case, God is calling unlikely heroes to step up. And so I'd ask you to think about, man, what is it that God, if I was envisioning, dreaming what God could do through me, what might it be? I know someone who loved playing flag football and just decided we're going to make a team and then that team became two and it became a, a league and that person's baptized over 150 people because they would do flag football and then they would have a devotion. It's amazing. I know somebody that was a, a hairdresser, a cosmetologist, and they said, what can I do? And they got a heart for people with special needs and their caregivers. And they said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer free haircuts for those with special needs, and, and I'll serve a meal to two, three, four people maybe, and, and allow their caregivers some time uh, to take a break. And so they did that, and then when the person that cut hair next to her, found out what she was doing. She said, well, I'll do that. I'd like to do that. And then the person that cut hair over there, she said, well, I want to be a part of that. Next thing you know, there's 50 to 100 people with special needs that are getting their hair taken care of and their nails done and all this sort of stuff once a month at a church. And the caregivers go out and they have a big meal together and there's this, this big community. And it just it's just crazy what God can do when you just offer him you. You say, well, how do I do it? Well, I don't know. There's teams around here. 
teams of volunteers. It's just a great way for you to begin to experiment with what it is that God might be calling you to do. And I'm not asking for my sake or for the church's sake. We actually did a volunteer recruiting. We had over 400 new volunteers that stepped up and said, we'll be a part of it. So I'm just, I'm literally, I'm throwing that out as an option to you that God wants to use you in a significant way. Maybe that's a way for you to begin to experiment and think about what it is that God has for you to do. Sign up for a team. And then finally, I said, wake up to, what's, to anything that's holding you back. Step up to God's call in your life. And then finally, give up. And I say, well, what do you mean give up? In verse 30, it says, the Israelites had peace for 80 years. And that sounds good, but it gets a little bit depressing because chapter 3, verse 7, it says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So 80 years went by, and then they kind of went back to this old cycle. And then in verse 12, it says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it said, after Ehud had died, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Ehud's rescue wasn't a full rescue. The people kept coming back again and again and again. Ehud delivered them from the consequences of their evil, but not the source of it. Because he, as a judge, as a deliverer, really could only serve the purpose of pointing ultimately to the ultimate deliverer, who is Jesus. Because we'll keep going back and back and back again until we have a heart transplant. Until Jesus comes and changes our heart. And that's what I'd like to invite you to today. If you're here and you found yourself sort of wandering from Jesus, I invite you to today. We're going to have communion in just a little bit. And let that be a time of surrender. Let that be a time for you to say, God, I, I, I want to come back to following you with my life. I've looked into the mirror of Scripture. This is, God, what you're waking me up to in my life. If you're somebody that's said yes to Jesus, then we invite you during communion to, to think that way, to let it be a time of surrender. But if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus at all of our campuses, I want to encourage you, after the service is done, come down, find your campus pastor, find one of our staff and say, hey, I want to make a decision to follow Jesus today. I can't think of a better day to do it than today. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that each and every one of us, people listening to my voice, God, that we would give up control to you. Pray, Father, that wherever we're holding on tightly, you would help us to trust you and to let go of control in our life. God, any area that we need to step up Step up into the calling that you have for us. Lord, it might take courage. It might take investment. It might take time. God, it might take the support of others. But I pray that you give us that courage and help us to take that step. And then, Lord, we need an awakening. We need to wake up, God, to what is it that's holding us back? What is it, God, that keeps us in mediocrity? What is it, God, that, that, that we're not releasing to you? What is it, God, that you're calling us to? God, wake us up.
help us to follow Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.